Happy Mother's Day again. We have at um, the end of the service, we have a little gift for mothers, and um, we uh, don't make a big deal of Mother's Day in the service, but it's, it's not because we hate all the mothers of the world. <laughs> it's just that uh, we've come to worship the Lord, and I, we really believe that um, you and your family can do a much better job than what uh, we could do, and so we'll let the celebration happen individually, and um, we'll focus on God's Word. And um, we're in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 through 34. If you would, please uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll look at this short uh, section. Matthew chapter 20 Verse 29, the word of the Lord says, As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story. It's an incredible story. Power involved in two individuals who are in a desperate need. I pray now as we look at this story, and even though it probably might be very familiar to the majority of us, that uh, your spirit would illumine our minds and that we would have an understanding of it, uh, that we could put it into practice, that it wouldn't just be uh, another time rehearsing the story, but we can use it for our daily living to become more like Christ and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Irony is a, a form, a figure of speech. It's a, it's a method used, rhetorical method used by the author, the speaker, to, um, to convey a message that's opposite to what the audience is expecting. So the audience uh, is expecting the, uh, the person giving the speech to go in this one direction, and then for effect, it changes what the audience is anticipating. And it's not to uncover the message, that's not the purpose at all, but rather to heighten what he is trying to explain. Uh, this heightening uh, causes the audience to really pay attention to what was, what was used, what was said. And there's different types of irony, but one of the aspects of irony is that uh, it's used to taunt or to ridicule, taunt or ridicule uh, somebody. And so usually in a speech, uh, the person is taunting or ridiculing somebody. Uh, somebody that should have known better, but uh, unfortunately they, they do not. They should have been able to understand certain things, but as the speaker is talking to them, they, they haven't comprehended, and so a use of irony is used to kind of ridicule that situation. And hopefully the rest of the audience can comprehend and apply what the person is saying. Now, as we look at this uh, section, I mean, it's a very short section, but 
uh, we really have to understand it in the light of Matthew 18, 19, and 20 of what's been going on. And to be able to really grasp what's going on where, where Jesus talks and he, uh, he invites children to come by him uh, as opposed to the disciples who are struggling together to get power. They're, they're really working to try to get power and who's going to be on top. And in contrast to the disciples who are following Jesus, there are the children that uh, he accepts freely into his company. Uh, there's also this uh, situation where there's, um, there's a, a, a rich uh, young man. He's very moral, extremely moral. But uh, Jesus allows him to walk away because his kingdom is not about moral people, but rather it's about individuals who realize their need for a savior and they turn to him in faith. It's not individuals coming with their own merit to God. No, it's individuals who recognize that they have nothing to offer, and unless they uh, have their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for them, there, there's no salvation. We have in this text that I just read that they're uh, leaving Jericho. And this causes a little bit of a problem because last week we saw that Jesus was ascending to Jerusalem. Uh, it, and it causes a little bit of an interpretive problem. How are we to understand that they were ascending to Jerusalem, but now they're in Jericho? It seems kind of, um, it doesn't flow really well. And there's two different ways of understanding this. Uh, Jerusalem is about 3,000, a little bit over 3,000 feet above Jericho. So even if you take a step out of the gate, you start ascending to Jerusalem. And it could just mean that when it was talking about he was ascending up to uh, Jerusalem, could have been taking all the way from Jericho. And that's one possibility. But, but I think something else is happening here. Uh, I think Matthew is using this section, using something that happened uh, before the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came and asked for that position for their sons to sit on the right and to the left of, uh, of uh, Jesus. The... I believe that he decides to incorporate this story uh, after those events. It had happened previous to those events, but he decides to put it here uh, for literary effect. See, Jesus has said that he came not to be served, but to serve. And now he's going to use an example of, of this lifestyle of Jesus where he looks to be involved in serving others. And he's going to be serving these two blind individuals. So either way that you take it, uh, it has a very uh, precise literary effect, this little narrative here right before it goes into the triumphal entry of Jesus. Now what we're going to be looking at, what we're going to be focusing on today, is our need to turn to Christ in faith and follow him. Now you might think that turning to Christ in faith was something that maybe, maybe is something done historically. Like uh, you remember maybe a time when you walked forward at a church and uh, you asked them to explain to you how you could believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and they maybe took you aside and they said some things to you and at that moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and you were saved. And you probably thought that that was a, uh, something that happened a long time ago or, or a little while back, but that's just something in the past and uh, it's not really something that you do now. But I'm going to present from Scripture that um, this believing in faith is something that's a continual aspect, something that we continually do, and we continually follow after Christ. 
That's, that's the Christian life. That's the life of the disciple, of believing and following, believing and following. Now, as we look at this, that we have this necessity to turn to Christ in faith and follow him, the way we're going to do this, uh, the way that we can do this, is the first thing is to recognize our need. The first thing we have to do is recognize our need. It, it says there in Matthew 29, it says, As they were leaving Jericho, I don't know what image came into your mind when I said Jericho. Maybe you were thinking of uh, when Joshua uh, crossed over with uh, Israel and they marched around the city and maybe the thoughts of the city walls crumbling down and Israel marching in. That's the idea of Jericho. Of course, this Jericho is a lot uh, separated uh, time-wise from that incident. Uh, I'm not sure what you were thinking about when I said Jericho, but in my mind, I kind of get this uh, idea of uh, danger. Uh, you remember the, the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan. There was this guy, he was leaving Jerusalem, and he was on his way to Jericho. And on that way to Jericho, he found a, a great group of people, right? Good moral citizens, and they were just uh, handing out bottles of water to encourage people back on their way home to Jericho, right? No. What did they do? They, they, they robbed him. They beat him up. They took his clothes. He was just left there naked until someone stopped by and helped him. So as I think about uh, this road to Jericho, there's certain things that supposedly uh, make it a little bit dangerous. The, the way is kind of windy as it winds up to Jerusalem. Uh, at parts, uh, from what I understand, it gets kind of narrow and you can't see a great distance. So all of a sudden you turn around a corner There'll be big boulders. You go around it, and there's a group of people there waiting for you. But here they're going to, uh, leaving Jericho, on their way to Jerusalem, but there's a crowd. Now, that, that should uh, maybe make things a little bit better, right, if you've got a crowd. Uh, now you don't need to run faster than the people that are trying to steal from you. You just have to run faster than the guy beside you, right? And if you're smart, what do you do? You kind of stay in the middle, right? Uh, let them attack the people in the front, and then you got time to run. Or if they attack the people in the back, then you start running, right? You know where I'm going to be at if we ever go in a group anywhere, right? I'm going to be right in the middle. <laughs> and uh, so here we could see that maybe, maybe there's a little bit of security as they're going up to Jerusalem. Maybe it might be a dangerous road. It kind of gets narrow at parts, but there's a whole group of them. And we know we've been following this group because they've been going from uh, from Galilee, and they crossed over Jordan, then they crossed over Jordan again, and now they're going to go up. And it says, uh, and two blind men, verse 30, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, uh, we see here that there's some individuals, there are two blind men, and they're recognizing that they have a need. It's a need that they can't uh, fix themselves. And furthermore, they, can't, uh, they haven't been able to find any doctors to be able to fix them. Uh, there they are sitting on the road, and it's the road that leads out of Jericho towards Jerusalem. Uh, here individuals would be leaving to go up to, to worship for the Passover. Uh, people are feeling a little bit more spiritual as they're doing this uh, trip to go worship the Lord. So maybe they're feeling a little bit more generous. They're blind, but they're not dumb, right? So they sit at that road and maybe receive some, some gifts, some alms from the people that are walking by. And there they are, and as they're sitting there, they can hear 
people, a commotion, groups of people, and they hear that Jesus is going past them. They recognize that they had a need, and they recognize that someone very special was in their midst, and they address them, they cry out, Lord, which shows that there's an aspect of authority and sovereignty there, right? If you address somebody as Lord, you're not saying that you're equal to them, right? They're on some aspect, on some level, that person has a certain authority that you do not have. And they address them, Lord, have mercy on us. Have compassion. Be compassionate towards us. And then they say, Son of David. Now this uh, Son of David is a, is, a, is a title for a king. If you remember from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17, there is a, there's this, well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's David wants to build a temple for, for the Lord. And um, God says, you're going to build me a temple? Uh, I put my feet on the earth. What do you want to build for me? And he, God says there in verses 8 through 17, he says, no, I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be a whole dynasty. And there will be one person that will sit on your throne, and they will reign forever, forever. That's what he promised. Now, how do we compare this with Daniel chapter 7? Because Jesus has been addressing himself as the Son of Man. And you remember in Daniel chapter 7 that there's this vision that Daniel has, uh, these different kingdoms that appear, and then finally the Ancient of Days appears, and one like the Son of Man comes and establishes an eternal kingdom, someone that sits on the throne and rules the whole world forever. How do we distinguish what, what differences are between this? Well, they kind of are the same thing. Both have a kingly aspect to them, but uh, in Daniel 7, the Son of Man, he's going to rule over the whole world, Whereas in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17, it's not just the king of the world, it's their king. It's more personal. It's their king that's coming to establish his kingdom. So they're not recognizing just a king in general, somebody with authority. They're recognizing their king is there in their presence, the one who fulfills the Davidic promise. He is in their presence. He's there. Their king, not a king in general, but their king, they recognize him as being personal to them. So the first thing that if we're going to be uh, walking, if we're going to be having faith in Christ and following him, the first thing we need to do is recognize our, our need to do that. Uh, recognize our problem. And they, they've done that. The second thing that needs to be done is to, to be humble, to humble ourselves. Now, this is, this is difficult. It's difficult to do. But we see that they are being very humble, uh, how they are um, talking. Uh, first, they start to cry out, as it says there in verse 30. Can you imagine how embarrassing that is, to be screaming out? There's a whole group of people, and uh, you're screaming out, uh, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. I mean, it's one thing when you're in the stands and... and um, you, they're going to the soccer goal, and they go, 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 go up, go, they pass it, they pass it over here, and then the person kicks, and you assume uh, that uh, the, he scored the goal, and you jump up, and you go, goal! And then you realize he missed, and you're the only one screaming. You know how embarrassing that is? I mean, it's not embarrassing if everybody's up there screaming, right? You know, ah, 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 high fives, right? But it's different if you're by yourself screaming, and here's these two guys, and they're screaming out. But look what it says there in verse um, 31. 
the crowd sternly, sternly told them to be quiet. That's, that's the word for the sternly is the word rebuked, which expresses a strong disapproval of someone. They're, they're, they're demonstrating a strong disapproval against the two blind men screaming out. Now, the question is, who, who is showing this strong disapproval? I mean, we would assume that um, this would have to be the Pharisees, right? I mean, it, it just seems like something they would do to be criticizing, to be disapproving of the blind man crying out to, to Jesus as Lord and to the Son of David. You would, you would think that that would have to be the Pharisees or maybe the Sadducees, religious people there uh, who have this notion of, of godliness but really are not following after God. Or, or maybe you would think that it has to be Judas, that guy. It, it's got to be Judas getting mad at the two blind guys. Who... Who is sternly telling them to be quiet? It's the crowd. And, and look specifically, verse 29, that it's not a crowd in general. It's not just a crowd that's on their way to Jerusalem. It's a crowd that followed him. So it's a crowd that is following Jesus that is getting upset at two blind men asking for mercy. I mean, can you imagine the situation? I mean, how ridiculous this is. He's been talking about how the kingdom of heaven is for the children, for the humble, that he's seeking to serve, not to be served. And they're just not getting it. They don't get it at all. I don't know if you've ever had the joy of teaching like a children's Sunday school class. Uh, every once in a while you're there teaching and uh, they'll, they'll start. I, I, I already know that story. I already know it. I already know that story. And they know all the stories, you know. And um, sometimes I feel like saying, I don't do this. That, that would be bad. Show me with your actions that you understand the story. No, don't, don't tell me that you know the story. Show, show me with your actions that you've really understood this story. They haven't, they haven't understand a bit since chapter 18. I mean, not a thing. Here they are supposedly following Jesus, but they have no compassion on the two blind men. I mean, they've, they've got all this knowledge up in their head, all these things that Jesus has been saying. They've seen Jesus working these miracles, but they just don't understand. And so they're antagonistic against the two blind men. They, don't, they haven't gotten a clue. Do they have stories to share? They've got a ton of stories to share. Do they have things to, to tell their other family members, look what Jesus did? Yes, but it hasn't affected them in their heart. And that's what's so sad, because even today, there's probably individuals who have a ton of stories that's stored up in their head. They could just start regurgitating out one after another. We could be here all day. But it has had no effect on their heart. None whatsoever. They don't understand what it is to follow after Jesus. They've never had the forgiveness because they've never put faith in him. It's just a bunch of stories. And here's the crowd. They're following Jesus, but they have not gotten it. They just don't understand. Oh, what a sad, sad testimony for them. And it would be a very sad testimony for you, too. To walk out today maybe with one more story to tuck away and not understanding it at all 
not living it one little bit. Here's the humbling part for the two individuals. They're getting cried out to, to, to be quiet by the group that's following Jesus. So what do they do? Well, if they're going to be crying out, they're going to have to raise their voice a little bit louder, aren't they? And now they've got to speak over not only just the noise of them walking, but they've got to speak over the, them telling them to be quiet. And that's what they do. They cried out, all the more. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They recognize Him as Lord. They recognize Him as the Son of David. How do they know that He's the Son of David? Even if they had His Facebook profile, they couldn't see it. They're blind, yet somehow they are able to recognize Him. And therefore, they humble themselves before Christ. If we're going to believe in faith and follow after Him, there has to be a point in your life where you humble yourself. Where you recognize that you have a need and there's not a thing in the world that you can do for that need. And you must humbly come to Christ. And the third thing is, you have to ask. You have to ask Jesus to heal you. And that's what they do. We see there in verse 33, uh, sorry, verse 32. And Jesus stopped, called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? It seems kind of obvious, right? <laughs> Two people blind. I mean, you could take a wild guess, but he doesn't do that. They have to ask for what they want. They have to tell him what it is that he needs done, uh, that they need done from him. And so they, 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 he's going to get them to say it. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Open. It's kind of a, kind of a strange way to, uh, to request to be able to see, isn't it? Uh, because usually the problem is not that the eyelids are not open. Uh, sometimes uh, people who are blind, their eyelids are open. So what does it mean that they want their eyes to be opened? It just seems kind of a strange way. Why don't I, just, I just want to be able to see. But they're asking specifically that they have their eyes open. It, it's, it's, very, it's used very rarely, this, this kind of expression. In fact, um, no one else has asked to have their eyes open. Jesus said that he opened the eyes of those two blind individuals in, in Matthew chapter 9, 27 through 31. But that's Jesus' testimony that he opened their eyes. But no one else has requested that they wanted their eyes to be open. And it makes it kind of very unique. The, unique to the point that you have to kind of start searching out scripture and kind of figuring out why. I mean, it's just kind of very strange to be requesting that their eyes be open. Uh, there is a scenario where something like this kind of happens, and it's found in Genesis chapter 3. If you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. You remember that Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 1 and uh, 2, God has created the world, everything that's in it. Uh, chapter 2, God focuses in a little bit more into the Garden of Eden and, and putting man, and uh, he tells uh, man uh, there in verse in chapter 2, verse uh, 
15 uh, through 17 that um, everything in the garden is at their disposal to eat. They can eat freely, freely from anything. Just, just enjoy. Only thing is that there's one tree in the middle of the garden that they're not supposed to eat the fruit. But everything else, just, just go and enjoy. Uh, you can go systematically and, and work your way around. You can just grab, but you can do, you can just eat freely. In chapter 3, we don't know how much time has elapsed from the time when God has told Adam not to eat of this one tree to Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 3, there's this dialogue that happens between the serpent, uh, who's very crafty, and he comes up to Eve. And uh, he, he's asking questions from her. And it says... Uh, there, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the fields, which the Lord God had made, and said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat uh, from it, your eyes will be opened. Eyes be opened? You mean to tell me that they've been walking around the garden blind this whole time? That would be quite the feat, right? Because if you remember, after God made Adam, he brought the animals past them, past Adam, so that he would identify them and name them, remember? So unless he's kind of just feeling it and saying, yeah, this feels like this, They've had the capacity to deceive. But now there's a serpent in the garden, and it's offering Eve the opportunity to have her eyes open, but apart from God. Not because of God, not through God, but apart from God. And what does she do? She sees it, and it looks good. She took it, she ate it, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate. And it says, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. They were opened. So here we have this situation, and this is the, the bit of irony here that we see. Eve has the capacity to see, but she wants her eyes to be opened. She wants something apart from God. She wants to have a knowledge that God hasn't given her, but she wants to acquire it apart from God. And she does. She disobeys God. And her eyes are open. Going back to Matthew, we see here's two blind individuals. They, they can't see. But they don't look to circumvent God at all. If they are going to get sight, they want God to give them the sight. So they turn to Him, and He gives them sight so that they can see. It's a bit ironical that uh, not only that, Here's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they've been seeing what Jesus has been doing. They've seen how he has multiplied uh, fish and bread, and a whole multitude of people have eaten. They have seen how, how Jesus has healed people that were sick. He's, he's given uh, people who were lame, are now walking. They've been able to see these things, and yet they don't recognize him as the son of David. They don't recognize him as Lord. They have the capacity to see, and here's these two blind individuals who can't see, but they understand who Jesus is. So many times 
blessings from the Lord become inhibitors to really relying on Him. We think, oh, I can see. No one's going to fool me. I have understanding. Uh, They're not going to trick me into believing something. No, sir. Here are these two individuals, and it's kind of ironic that they can't see, but they identify Jesus correctly. And what does Jesus do? It says there in um, chapter 20, uh, verse 34, Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Jesus was moved with compassion. They go and they follow him. It's interesting that um, having the capacity to see, they, uh, they didn't go home and try to look at their family members. I thought you would be a lot more beautiful, but okay, I'll deal with it. You don't, they, you don't think that, uh, that maybe they looked at what they were wearing and said, man, I should maybe go to the mall? I mean, you know, who, who puts a black shirt and red pants on, really? Uh, yeah, maybe you thought the necessity to go and, and go shopping? No. Jesus healed them, and they followed. They followed after Jesus. We must turn to Christ and follow Him. Uh, this this uh, involves trusting Christ as your Savior. Now the question is, are you someone who can see and yet still rejecting Jesus? Or are you lost in your trespasses of sin and you can see that He's the only one that can save you from your sins? Are you in that position where that you've acknowledged that Christ is the only one that can save you? Or are you still thinking that you can see and say, no one's going to trick me? No, sir, I'm going to keep on looking. I'll find. I've got problems in my life, but I'm going to keep on looking for somebody else. There's no one else. It's Christ. Christ saved you. Maybe you've already trusted Christ as your Savior. But you're not following. You've got your own agenda. You've got things to do. You've got plans you got purposes that you want to do. If he's healed you, you should be following him. And let me tell you, the biggest healing that he can do is forgive you of your sins. So that you no longer have the wrath of God on you, but you have peace with God. You have to recognize your need. You have to humble yourself and ask Jesus. Have you done that? Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Father, as we stop and meditate on this scripture. Father, don't let us be like that crowd that was just following Jesus that just never did comprehend what he was saying. Oh, they had another story. And maybe they they told later on about how Jesus healed two blind men outside of Jericho, but they never comprehended it. Father, let us not be like that. Father, if there's anyone who is unsaved that today can be the day of salvation, Father, for other of us who are We've been saved, but we haven't been following. That we can take the steps of discipleship and follow after you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me? We're going to sing.